0: Welcome back. We are in Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're going to begin today at verse 6 and just read through some of these verses. This is the first Jerusalem council. And really the council itself begins in verse 6 where we're told the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know... But in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, just a brief review of where we are. We said that a good problem had arisen in the life of the church. I called it a good problem because it was a problem that resulted from the tremendous growth and success of the ministry among the Gentiles. So that was a good problem. We talked about this last week. We said that when churches grow, they face difficulties. They face challenges. Uh, If a congregation is growing exponentially and you're confined to your space, what do you do? You've got to do one of two things. You've either got to add services... So you may have started off having just one service on a Sunday and all of a sudden you discover that you've got to have two or in some places three or four or more than that, who knows? And if you find that you still cannot be confined within your space, then what do you have to do? Well, you have to go out and you have to find another space that can perhaps accommodate you and your congregation. Now, we describe that as a good problem. And it is a good problem. Everybody wants to see the church grow, hopefully. But it's still a problem. And it's a problem that has to be dealt with, and that's exactly what was happening as the result of that first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas embarked on. We're told that the church began to grow, and it began to grow quickly. Now initially, the first believers were confined pretty much to where? Well to Jerusalem, that's right, and for the most part they were Jews. Now, yes, they had embraced Jesus Christ, and they regarded Him as the Messiah, as the long-promised, long-anointed Christ who had finally arrived to deliver His people. But still, in terms of their own identity, they thought as Jews, and they regarded themselves as Jews, simply as Jews who recognized that the Messiah had come. And so if you'd asked them in those early days, well, what are you? They probably would not have described themselves as Christians. Remember, it was in Antioch that they were first described as Christians. Those early believers in Jerusalem would have regarded themselves simply as the Jews and followers of the way. That's how they would have regarded themselves. But as Paul went out and he began to preach to the Gentiles, the church began to grow, and those Gentiles did not regard themselves as Jews at all. They regarded themselves as Christians, little Christ followers of Christ, and they they had no tie whatsoever necessarily, that is, to the Jewish faith, except to say that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now that created a problem in the life of the church. And the question was, if the Gentiles are to be saved, how are they to be saved? Paul had been proclaiming the only thing that was required in order for a person to be saved was to do what? Place their faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for their sins. But up to that point, in order for a person to be saved, they had to be a part of God's covenant community, didn't they? And the outward visible sign that you are a part of God's chosen people, that covenant community, was circumcision. This outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. That's what we call a sacrament. And the Old Testament sacrament for the Jews, if you will, was circumcision. Now I want you to understand, there was never any dispute that Gentiles could be saved. Every Jew in the first century would have told you that Gentiles could be saved. The question was, How were they saved? Was it by faith alone, as the Protestant reformers would insist, sola fide, or was it faith plus something else? And there were those believers in Jerusalem who were saying, oh yes, the Gentiles could be saved, but if they're going to be saved, they have to first become Jews. There are lots of examples in the Old Testament of Gentiles being saved, incidentally. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, for instance, was saved and she was a Gentile. The same thing was true for Naaman the Syrian, uh, the man who was cured of his leprosy. He too was a Gentile, and he too was saved, but in every instance in the Old Testament, they were saved by first becoming Jews. And so that's what many of these people here in Jerusalem were claiming. And this became such a serious debate, a dispute in the life of the church, that they decided to call a council. Let's get all of the great minds together and let's sort this thing out. If Gentiles are gonna be saved, how are they gonna be saved? Do they have to first become Jews, be circumcised, submit all to the laws and the regulations of Judaism, all the kosher restrictions, etc., or can they simply place their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation and that is sufficient? That was the great debate was going to take place at this council in Jerusalem. I think it's great that the church decided not to just ignore the problem, but to come together and face it. They did not pull what I call a Scarlet O'Hara. Remember those last lines of Gone with the Wind, where Rhett says that memorable line, frankly, my dear, I don't... Well, we're in church, so we won't say it. But then what happens? It's not the last line of the movie. He walks off into the mist, and Scarlet's standing there at the door, and she says, oh, whatever shall I do? Wherever shall I go? And she goes, and she sits down on that grand staircase, and she says, I'll think about that tomorrow. That's what I call a Scarlet O'Hara. And let's be honest. We all, at one point or another in our lives, like to pull a Scarlet O'Hara. I just can't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. It is to the church's credit that it faced the problem head on. And it brought all the interested parties, all the leadership together to deal with this issue, to ask for the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, over the centuries, there have been many church councils. This was the first, and in many instances, I think this was the greatest. It's not to say that it was a perfect council. I'll argue that there may be a certain weakness in what this council did in the end. Perhaps not. But there may be, and we'll take a look at that in just a moment. But what is important to recognize is that it was a great council, and it did a number of important things. But in order to understand what it accomplished, you have to understand, first of all, what was at stake. What was at stake that they were dealing with? Well, three things in particular. If this council had decided that, yes, in order for Gentiles to be saved, they had to become Jews first, they had to submit to circumcision and all to the regulations, the kosher laws, etc., of Judaism, then a number of things would follow. First of all, it would mean that Paul and Barnabas, who had gone off on that first missionary journey, commissioned by that church in Antioch, preaching and suffering in places like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and a Pisidian Antioch, it would mean that they were actually false prophets. They were out there, preaching a false gospel, telling people that the only thing that was necessary in order to be saved was to what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would not be true if you had to be circumcised. So the Apostle Paul, who we generally regard probably next to the Lord Jesus Christ as having done more than anyone else in history to advance the cause of the Christian gospel, if they had decided that you had to become a Jew before you could be saved, That would have meant that Paul and Barnabas were preaching a false gospel. It would have meant that this tremendous growth that was taking place in these Gentile churches was actually a damnable deceit. So that's the first thing at stake. This is no minor issue. The second thing would be that faith is not enough. Faith is fine. Faith is wonderful. We hope you have it. But that is not sufficient to save anybody. Are saved when all is said and done by your works plus faith, but not by faith alone. So that's the second thing that would have been meant here. The great battle cry of the Reformation would be for naught. And the third thing that this would mean was that Gentiles in the past and Gentiles in the present, unless they become Jews, at which point they cease to be Gentiles, would not be saved would not be saved, and furthermore, could not be saved. So these were big issues at stake here in Acts chapter 15. I'd go so far as to say there's hardly any issue, at least practically speaking, for you and for me as men and women that is more pressing, more important than the issue of salvation, where we are going to spend our ultimate destiny. So this was a very important council. Something else I didn't emphasize last week, but I want to emphasize today is that this was, at least for the Apostle Paul, a deeply personal issue. That was a deeply personal issue, of course, because Paul had been commissioned to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so, if they decide that, no, you have to become a Jew before you can be saved, then that would have meant that all of that work on that first missionary journey would have been for naught. So that was deeply personal for Paul. Can you imagine working for something, maybe your whole life, only to discover that it's going to be taken away from you? That it was all for naught, that it had no significance, no value whatsoever, that you were off track the whole time? It's a deeply personal issue for Paul. But more than that, this was a deeply personal issue for Paul because he knew from his own life, from his own experience, that circumcision was not enough. He knew from his own life that he was, he, was, he was not saved by grace through faith, then he, as an individual, was sunk. And Paul says that very clearly. Now keep your finger there in the book of Acts and turn for a moment to Philippians. Just a few pages to the right in your Bible to Philippians. It's a rather short book. Philippians chapter 3. And Paul here is writing autobiographically, and I want you to notice what he says as he's writing to the Philippian church. One of the things you'll notice about Paul is that um, Paul's a straight shooter. I don't know about you, I, I find that somewhat refreshing. You know, Paul, you may not always agree with Paul, but you're never left in any doubt as to where he stands. You know, sometimes we are so concerned with being polite, so concerned with decorum, that sometimes we can send a mixed message to people. Paul was not that kind of person. You were never left in any doubt. Paul was probably a Yankee, but um, (laughs) at any rate, there's something refreshing about that too, mind you, I'll just let you know. But look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those people back in Jerusalem. That's who he's talking about. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. Paul's about as subtle as a sledgehammer. He says, who worship, for we are the circumcision. Now he's, he's writing to a Gentile audience that says, we are the circumcision. Now the Jews would have objected to that. They would have said, wait a minute, you're, you're not the circumcision. We're the circumcision. That's what this is all about. And Paul says, no, we are the circumcision. Not a circumcision done in the flesh by human hands, but a circumcision is done where? In the heart. By the grace and the mercy of God, we're the true circumcision. That's what God is interested in. Not things that are done outwardly in the flesh, but that which takes place in the heart. He says, and if you don't believe me, he said, consider my own life. He goes on in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. When I was uh, at Virginia Seminary uh, in Virginia, which was the, uh, in in those days, it was the seminary of the Episcopal Church. That's where uh, all the great bishops and so forth came from. Virginia had a long and illustrious history. Now I was just a young man from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, who came out of Pittsburgh? Well, Andrew Carnegie and people like that and Henry Clay Frick and the Mellons. They were not old money. They they were new money. Those were the people. That was the Gilded Age. They were the robber barons. When I got down there to Virginia, you met families that had been there since Jamestown. And they had an expression for those people. FFV. Every now and then they point to them and say, oh, he's FFV. You know what FFV means? First family of Virginia. Oh, yes, my goodness. What do they call North Carolina? A valley of humility between two peaks of arrogance, Virginia and South Carolina. Isn't that what they say? You know, FFV, FFSC, you know what it is. First family of Virginia, first family of South Carolina, all those things matter. Paul says, that's me. I was one of the first families, one of the foremost families. He said, I had reason for confidence in the flesh. Indeed, if anyone had reason, he said, it was me. He goes on to say this. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm part of God's chosen. He said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he emphasizes the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because there were points in the past where the people of God had rebelled against the Lord. They had forsaken His promises. But there was one tribe that was faithful, and that was the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I don't only came from God's chosen people. I came from the loyal tribe. When everybody else deserted the Lord and went after idols and worshipped the high places and so forth, he says, the tribe of Benjamin was loyal. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My parents were Hebrews. And not only that, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I'm not just a Jew who believes the Bible in the same way that there are some Christians who believe that the Bible might have some wisdom, some insight. He said, I was a Pharisee in terms of zeal. I was a religious fundamentalist. I was an evangelical. I believed the Bible, every jot and tittle of it. That's what he's saying here. So much so, he said, that I persecuted the church as to righteousness, Under the law, in terms of being obedient to the law, following the law, all the restrictions of the law, he says, I was what? Blameless. If you were at the Wednesday night service last night, Andrew uh, preached a little bit on the story of the rich young ruler. Remember that story of the rich young ruler who came before Jesus? Actually, it was a Pharisee who asked the question. I'm sorry, it's a different story. Forget what I just said. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who came before Jesus and asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Remember that story? And what did Jesus say? No, it's not what he said initially. He said, you know the commandments. What do the commandments say? And the young man thought for a moment and he said, yeah, I know the commandments and I've kept them all. Remember him saying that? since I was a youth. Now I have to admit, every time I read that story, I think to myself, that is a self-righteous prig. I mean, who in the world keeps all the commandments since you were a child? But that's what he thought. And let me tell you something, I think he probably did. Outwardly, at least, I think he really did keep all the commandments. Because when you get to the end of that story, and he goes away sorrowful because Jesus tells him that there's only one thing that you need to do. Go ahead and sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. And we're told that he was downcast. And he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. We're told that Peter turns to Jesus and says, well, if he can't be saved, what hope is there for the rest of us? Which tells us that he was probably a pretty impressive young man. At least outwardly, he was respectable. He was moral. He was upstanding. Paul's telling us in Philippians, that was me. In essence, I was that rich young man. I had it all. And so if anybody has a reason to boast in the flesh, it's me, I was blameless in terms of the law. But what does he go on to say? Verse seven, very important verse. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All of those things that the world says are of importance and consequence, your family name, your heritage, your accomplishments, your credentials, all of those things the world says are important and are of value and they are to be extolled and Paul says all of those things I count as what? Rubbish. Now here's what's interesting. That is a polite translation of the Greek. That's not what Paul says. I told you he was a straight shooter. He says I regard those things, now I recognize you're eating your lunch, as dung as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and being found in Him. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying this. In in, in modern translation, say, I'm one of the first families of America. My folks came over here on the Mayflower. And we were there at the beginning my father fought in the Revolution. I'm a member of the Society of the Sons of the Revolution. My mother's in the Colonial Dames. You name it. Paul lists all of these accomplishments, and he says, this is who I am. And yet he said, I have discovered that all of those things, from a spiritual point of view, count for what? Nothing. Nothing they count for nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Now why did Paul say that? Because he said there was a point when I once boasted in that. This is what mattered to me. I built my whole life, my whole foundation of my existence on these things, and one day on the road to Damascus, I was, it was made clear to me by the risen Jesus Christ that all of that did not matter. What mattered was what? Being found in Him. So, that's why this was a deeply personal matter for Paul, because it was the story of his own life. He had tried to earn God's favor. It's not to say that any of those things were bad. Paul was thankful for his heritage. And if you're among the first families of Virginia or South Carolina, wherever you're from, give thanks to God for your heritage. But you need to understand something. Nobody gets into heaven by riding on somebody else's coattails. Nobody. You may get into the White House that way, but you don't get into the kingdom of God that way by riding on somebody else's coattails. There's a great movie, one of my favorites, a 1946 classic called Life with Father. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. it stars a, an Irene Dunne and William Powell. These are old names. And, and a very young Elizabeth Taylor, like in her teens. Elizabeth Taylor, and the story is about this, this wealthy New York family, and in particular, father. There's a book by the same name, written by Clarence Day, and this is about his dad. And what's really interesting is that they are Episcopalians. Now, father is not a particularly, he goes to church. But he doesn't really go in for all this religious zeal and so forth. Mother, on the other hand, is very serious about the faith. And they've got a whole passel of kids. I think they're about eight or nine kids. And father runs that house as though he's the captain on the bridge. And at one point, one of his sons comes up to him, a little boy, and says, Father, will will you please go through my catechism with me? Confirmation is coming up. And so he takes the prayer book in hand and he starts going through. And he says, What is your name? My name is... Who gave you this name? My sponsors in baptism. When were you baptized? And the boy says, Father, when were you baptized? And father pauses for a moment. And he says, you know, I come to think of it, I don't think I ever was baptized. At which point, his wife almost chokes on her breakfast at the other end of the table. She says, Claire, don't joke about such things. She said, that, that, that's not funny. And he said, no, Vinnie, I I really don't think I ever was baptized. You know, my parents were free thinkers. And he said, I just don't think they ever really got around to it. Well, the whole rest of the movie is about a great conspiracy on the part of this family, mother and all the children, to get father baptized. And he adamantly refuses to do it. He said he is not going to let some hottentot pour water on his head. And at one point they reach this climax in the story, and mother and father are in the bedroom, and they're having a knockdown drag out. And at one point, mother says to father, Claire, you've got to make your peace with God. At which point, father replies, Until you and the rector stirred him up, I never had any trouble with God. <laughs> That's how we think, isn't it? Until. You and the rector, I think it was interesting that the rector got dragged into that, <laughs> stirred him up and never had any trouble with God. What well, you have to watch the movie. I'm not telling you how it is. <laughs> but see, that's the way we think. But Paul knew, despite all of his accomplishments, despite his history, he did have a problem with God, and that was made obvious to him on that road to Damascus. And he realized at that moment, if he got from God what he deserved, he would have been turned into a cinder. What he got from God on the road to Damascus was not what he deserved, but what he didn't deserve. And we call that grace. And he received that by faith, and that is what made all the difference. And so Paul, for Paul, this was a deeply personal issue. He knew that the Gentiles could only be saved by grace through faith and not by any human endeavor. Why? Because it had been true in his own life. So many people are out there thinking that by virtue of the fact that their mother was a good believer, they're going to get into heaven. In fact, at one point in that story, in that movie, father says that to mother. She says, it won't be heaven without you, Claire. And he says, oh, Vinnie, I doubt that I would get in on my own merits. He said, but you, you'll be able to talk God into letting me through the pearly gates. (laughs) That's what we think, isn't it? That's what Paul thought. It simply wasn't true. And so he knew this was a deeply personal issue for him. And so what happened was they got together to discuss this great issue of salvation. Now, I said last week that what we have here in the book of Acts, going back now to Acts chapter 15, is the public side of the debate. We get a somewhat sanitized version of the story. If you really want to get the full story, read Acts alongside Galatians, where Paul recounts his own personal involvement in this first council, and you begin to see how really volatile the situation was. Uh, In fact... Paul makes it very clear there was great pressure that was brought on him. And we talked about what that probably looked like last week. There were some who probably said to Paul now, Paul, we know that you're a great man, we know that you've done great things, you are certainly a theologian par excellence, but you need to understand how things are here in Jerusalem. I said it's very much like Washington. You know, it's fine if you're a young freshman senator or congressman from some rural state, but when you come to Washington, you need to understand how things really work. That was the kind of pressure that was brought against Paul and Barnabas. And what is interesting is that in Galatians, Paul says that that pressure was brought against him by those who were the, quote, pillars of the church. Now, who were the pillars of the church? Well, it's interesting. He goes on to mention Peter and James. He goes on to specifically mention Peter and James. Now, I don't want to make too much of that. But it does seem to imply that the pressure for him to give in on this matter of circumcision was coming from people who were the people who should have been most concerned about preserving the gospel message, Peter and James. And what does he say? He said, I did not give an inch. In fact, he said, I opposed Peter to his face. Now, I say the Acts gives us the, the, the sanitized version of the story. Why? Because if you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 7. It says, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much what? Debate. Luke never tells us what the debate looked like. He doesn't give us a a running account of what was said. That's why I say you go and you read what was going on in Galatians, and you get the real story. So this was not just some nice little party where you have tea and sandwiches and you talk about your differences. No, this this was a serious debate because these were serious, serious matters. And after there had been much debate and many people had spoken, and by the way, I think probably many people did speak, we're told in particular that there were three parties that stood up after that. Uh, First, Peter stands up. And then we're told Paul and Barnabas stood up. They probably talked together because it was their ministry that was in question here. And then James stood up. But before that, they said there had been much debate. And I rather imagine that lots of people had an opportunity to air their concerns. You know, sometimes you have to let that happen in the church. You can't stifle debate. You can't stifle conversation. You need to let people air their concerns. My experience is they're going to air them one way or the other. If they don't air them in the boardroom or in the vestry, they're going to air them in the parking lot. But they're going to air them. And so I think that everybody had an opportunity to pretty much express their opinion. And when everybody had pretty much said what they were going to say, we're told that Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. I want you to notice a number of things that Peter does here. He does three things in particular. The first thing that he does when he stands up to talk is he gives a little bit of his own testimony. People sometimes ask me, how do I share the gospel with others out there in the world? I, I don't feel like I'm equipped. I didn't go to seminary, I didn't get a degree, I don't feel like I have this encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible, so I don't know. I know I'm supposed to share my faith, but I don't really know how I'm supposed to share my faith. Any of you ever felt like that? You're not alone. Lots of people felt like that. So what do you do? You can do what Peter did here. You can do what Paul does multiple times in the book of Acts. You can share your story. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if he's made a difference in your life, you can simply share that story. Nobody's gonna come along and say to you, "I did not happen that way in your life. How can they say that? If this is what God has done in your life, you have a tremendous opportunity to do what? Share your story. Now, that does not necessarily mean that you're gonna win them over right away. But we know two things. Number one, it's not up to us to be successful. I've told you before, nobody is ever going to hear on that last great day, well done, thou good and successful servant. God is not interested in success. He's interested in fidelity, faithfulness. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this, the word of the Lord never comes back void. You are there to plant a seed. It is up to God, the Holy Spirit, to water that seed and cause it to grow. So you have an opportunity to share your faith. Peter does a little bit of this. Everybody has vented their spleen, everybody has said what they needed to say, but the issue still has to be resolved. Peter recognizes that he's a leader in the church. You cannot take the ultimate weight of decision-making off the leader's shoulders. And so what does Peter do? He stands up and the first thing he says, he says, let me tell you what happened to me. And what's interesting is that everybody in Jerusalem on that particular occasion knew what had happened to Peter. What had happened to Peter? He was Jewish. And he had gone to the town of Joppa. And he was there at the home of Simon the Tanner. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to the site. And he went up there on the flat roof, and there was a canopy, and he was there, and he fell asleep in the heat of the day. And as he was sleeping, he saw a vision. He saw a vision of a great sheep being let down out of heaven, and had all of these beasts and creatures on it. And a voice came from heaven saying, "'Kill and eat!' And what did Peter say? He said, Oh no. He assumed this was a test from the Lord. He said, God forbid these are not kosher, not clean. And what did God say? What I have called clean, you do not call unclean. And it happened three times, and the sheep was taken up. And as he woke up and he was pondering all of this, all of a sudden he hears this knock at the door. And he goes down, and there are Gentiles, unclean creatures. Who had been sent from the home of a doubly unclean man, a Gentile who was a Roman soldier by the name of Cornelius. And they begged him to come to Cornelius' house. And Peter went. Remember that? God was preparing him all along. It's interesting that he was staying at the home of Simon the tanner. What do tanners work with? Hides, dead animals something that no Jew would have been permiss- permitted to touch. So at any rate, he goes on from there, and he goes to the home of Cornelius, and Cornelius wants to hear the gospel, and what does what Peter do? Well, he starts to tell him about Jesus Christ. And in the course of telling him about Peter, about Jesus Christ, we're told the Holy Spirit came upon all those gathered in Cornelius' house. Here's what's interesting. The Holy Spirit came upon Gentiles. Unclean people. They hadn't been circumcised yet. They hadn't become Jews yet, and that they received what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, and the New Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit is what? The guarantee, the down payment, the earnest money on our relationship with Christ and our future inheritance in heaven. If you want to know if you're saved, the question is, does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? And here was the Holy Spirit come upon these men. They began to speak in tongues in precisely the same way that the apostles had done on Pentecost. And Peter realized, my goodness, that's how God saves people. He doesn't save them through acts done in the flesh. He doesn't save them by virtue of their heritage. He saves them what? By grace, received by faith. And so it's interesting, after everybody's had this long conversation and there had been much debate, Peter stood up and the first thing he says is, Brothers, you know that God called me to open the door to the Gentiles. Peter was the first one of the apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, not Paul. Not Paul. Paul would become the one famous for preaching to the Gentiles, but the first of the apostles to preach to a Gentile audience was Peter. And so he has to take into consideration what had happened in his own life. And that's the first thing that he says. This is the first reference, incidentally, in the council that we know of to the Holy Spirit. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as he did to us. The Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing that Peter does. He mentions the law, which the Jews regarded as being of the utmost importance. Remember, this is all about the law, submitting to the restrictions. to the. Law. This was not just about a physical act done in the flesh. Circumcision was an outward, invisible sign of something else. To submit to circumcision meant that you were submitting to everything that went along with it. It's like a wedding band. (laughs) Once that goes on your finger, it's not just a sign, it's a sign of what? A whole host of things. (laughs) Most of them good. But it's a sign of a whole host of things. And that was true of circumcision as well. It was a sign of a whole host of things. But it's interesting to note How Peter describes the law here, he describes it as what? As a yoke. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And he knew that was true in his own life. Peter knew that he tried to keep the law. In fact, when he saw people who appeared to do it better than he did, he despaired. That's what he did with the rich young ruler. Well, if he can't be saved, then what hope is there for me? He was a fisherman. Did you ever hear a sailor talk? That's what these fishermen were like. They were rough-hewn. They were backwards. They were common folk. And Peter realized that if it was up to him to keep the law, my goodness, the law was not a blessing. The law was a burden. What's the purpose of the law? Let me ask you a question. What are the Ten Commandments supposed to do in our lives? Did you ever notice that the Ten Commandments are oftentimes posted in churches? It used to be mandatory in all colonial churches in South Carolina that the Ten Commandments and the Creed be posted up by the altar, part of the rules of the Church of England. Now let me ask you a question. What are the Ten Commandments supposed to do? What's, what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Uh, it's not a trick question. Well, it is a trick question. But at any rate, I'm looking for a particular answer. What are the Ten Commandments designed to do? Okay, so there's a theologian down here in the front. What many people will say is that they're supposed to show us how to avoid sin. How many of you would agree with that? That's what the Ten Commandments are doing. They're supposed to show us what not to do. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not kill, thou thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie. You, you, You go right on down. All the things you're not supposed to do and all the things you are supposed to do. Honor thy father and mother. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Now how many of you have ever kept all the Ten Commandments? How many adulterers do we got out there in the crowd today? Right, let me ask you a different question. How many men are out there in the congregation today? <laughs> then you're all, in one way or another, probably most of the men, an adulterer. Maybe not in the flesh, but in the heart. Because Jesus said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. And let me tell you, it starts young. I was walking up King Street When we first moved to Charleston, and I have my little boy. Now he's only seven years old. And his mother, as we're walking up King Street past Victoria's Secret, his mother says, Josiah, don't look at that. At which point he goes like this. (laughs) I said, he's willing, you know, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I said, he's willing to risk one eye. So... (laughs) Seven years old. He couldn't help it. That's who we are. The law may tell us what we shouldn't do, but we still do it. And the law tells us what we should be doing, and yet we fail to do it. Isn't that true in your life? It certainly is true in my life. That's why I love that passage from Paul, and I keep coming back to it. The very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, I'll risk one eye. That's us. So what does the law do? The law doesn't give us the ability. It doesn't free us up to be holy. The only thing the law does is what? It condemns us. It reveals our sin. It's a schoolmaster. Moses came down from the mountain with the law. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. And what did he find the people doing there at the bottom of the hill? Worshiping the golden calf. Well, give them the law. But that wasn't going to keep them. They'd already committed the sin. What was he going to do? Simply going to reveal the fact that they were guilty, that they were lawbreakers. When you say to a little boy, you will not bite your sister, you're probably saying that because he already has. That's why you're saying, thou shalt not bite thy sister, because he already has. So when you give him the law, does it actually save him? The only thing it does is it convicts him. The law, my friends, is like a mirror. If you want to understand the purpose of the law, understand, this is the image for you. The law is like a mirror. It can reveal the dirt on your face, but it can't clean you. A mirror will show you the dirt on your face, but it cannot clean you. The only thing it can do is drive you to the soap and water. The commandments cannot save you. They cannot cleanse you. They can simply show you that you're filthy and you're dirty and you need to be cleansed. That's what Paul was saying. He says the law is a yoke. It's a burden if you think you're going to be saved by it. Nobody can ever live up to it. And then he says this in verse 11. And I was talking to Ryan about this earlier this week. He was asking me a question about Acts chapter 15. And I told him that I think these are the most gracious words to ever flow from the lips of the Apostle Peter. He said lots of things. But I think these are among the most gracious words ever spoken by Peter. When he finishes with talking about the yoke, he says this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now, I say that those are among the most gracious words ever spoken by Peter. Why? Because as a Jew, we would expect it to be the other way around, wouldn't we? We would expect him to say, we believe that the Gentiles can be saved just as we are. But he doesn't say that. He says, we believe that we will be saved just as they have been. In other words, if we're going to be saved, we have to become like these Gentile believers, not the other way around. You know, so often, we expect people to become like us, don't we? How gracious of Peter to stand up and say, they're saved. They've received the Holy Spirit. Nobody can deny it. And they were saved by faith, and if we're going to be saved, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, if we're going to be saved, we're going to have to be saved just as they have been. It's going to be by grace, and it's going to be by faith. Oh, that's gracious. Those are gracious words. Yes? Initially, yes. Initially, I think it was great pressure when they first arrived in Jerusalem. But we're told that Peter stood up after there had been much debate. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think it was easy for Peter to be a listener. I think this, is a, this was a gift that he developed over the course of time. Because most of the time, Peter was afflicted with foot and mouth disease. He always said something and then re- regretted it afterward. But it's interesting to note that he was maturing by this point And he sat there quietly and he listened to the debate and then he stood up. No, I think Peter was saved before this. Um, you know, the question arises um, was Peter saved when he made that confession at Caesarea Philippi? You are the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. I don't know about that. You know, sometimes you can give the right answer and still not understand what you've said. I always say that Peter's the guy that passes the text and still flunks the course. But I do think that at the time of his restoration by the Sea of Galilee, Peter was firmly in the camp. I don't think there's any question about that. But he's still a human being. He he still makes mistakes. He's still got his old prejudices. Let me tell you something, the work of sanctification, justification is an instantaneous thing. Sanctification is a process. Being made like unto the image of Christ is something that God works on. You've heard the expression, I'm a work in progress. Well, if you're a believer, of course you're a work in progress. And God had been working on Peter up to this point. But, I, but what he said here was very gracious, and it shows us that he was willing to set aside his own prejudice, and he was willing to embrace the good news. And he certainly speaks with a, with a graciousness here. Now, who speaks next? Well, we're told that after he had finished, the assembly fell silent. I think that was the first thing that's important, that the assembly fell silent. Peter had spoken, and his words were so gracious, and nobody expected that kind of talk to come out of people, Peter, that everybody recognized, this is the word of the Lord. You know, there are times when some people speak, and it's like E.F. Hutton. You just know, "This this is the word of the Lord, and I think on that occasion, that was the case, because we're told the whole assembly fell silent. And then we're told Barnabas and Paul stood up. And they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, I think this is important. I agree with those commentators who suggest that Paul probably had a pretty hard time up to this point. Paul was a very rational man. He was a Jew, but he was trained as a lawyer, he was trained as a Pharisee. And to make matters more interesting... He grew up in a Greco-Roman background. He grew up in Tarsus, which was one of the great university cities of the ancient world. We talked about that, and we talked about Paul's background and his conversion. Paul probably had a very fine, what we would call classical education. And so he's listening to all these people tell stories about the signs and the wonders that God had done, and he is thinking rationally. He's ready to engage in a theological debate, but he knows that's not where his congregation is. If you're going to be effective, you've got to know your audience. And Paul understood his audience. He knew he was not talking to Gentiles. There were a few Gentiles there, perhaps. He brought Titus, of course, along. But really, this was a Jewish audience, and the Jews were more concerned not with so much theology as the great works of God. What's the Old Testament really a story of? It's not so much theology. You get the theology that develops out of that, yes, but the theology is found in the New Testament. What you get in the Old Testament are the acts of God, the signs and the wonders, how he delivered the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. That's what the Jews were concerned with, what God had done in the past and how he had worked. And so it's interesting, on this particular occasion, What Paul does is he does not engage in a theological debate. Instead, he simply tells the audience the signs and the wonders of what God was doing among the Gentiles. He piggybacks on what Peter had said. When Peter talked about what God had done among the the, the uncircumcised believers there at Cornelius' house, Paul piggybacks on that. In fact, I told you last week that he brought along a man for show and tell, Titus. Remember that? A Gentile. And he said, as a matter of fact, let me show you what God is doing among the Gentiles. Titus, come on up here for a second. Ever notice when the president gives a State of the Union address, no matter what the president is, he always points out to somebody up there in the balcony. He says, stand up, Staff Sergeant so-and-so, who was in Afghanistan. you ever see the president do that? They all do that. I don't know where that started, but they all seem to do it. That's what Paul did. He said, Titus, come on up here. Titus, tell these good people what God has done in your life. And that was a piggyback, you see. And the Jews who were really interested in the works of God could see in the life of these Gentiles a dramatic change. You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus said, and they could tell by the fruit of this man's life that a change had taken place. And then finally, James stands up to speak. We're told that after they had finished speaking, James replied, verse 13, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he goes on to quote from the Old Testament from the book of Amos. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues." So James stands up, he's the last one to speak. That tells us that Peter was not the leader of this council. James was the leader of this council. James was, of course, the brother of the Lord. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a legalist. To some degree, that even comes through in his letter later on in the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, the book of James. There's no question that he's concerned with dotting every I and crossing every T. James is very concerned about that. He's the convener of this conference. What is also interesting is that he refers... Not to Peter, but to who? To Simon is what my translation says, but the real word is Simeon. Simeon. It's interesting, when he refers to Peter, he does not refer to him as Petros, the rock, although he's going by that name at this point. He calls him by his Jewish name, which is Simon, and not just Simon, but the most Jewish form of that name, Simeon. See, James had been on the other side of the debate. He had convened this conference. Why? Because it had caused such a stir among his congregation. And so when it's his turn to stand up and speak as the convener, as the the chairman of this conference, he stands up and the first thing he does is he refers not to Peter, not even to Simon, but to Simeon. He's referring to Peter, but he's using his Jewish name and the most Jewish form of his name. what he's doing. And then he quotes from the book of Amos. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent that David has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from old. He stands up and he says you all know what God did among Simeon. He's a Jew. He's the first among us. But you know that God did a work among him through the Gentiles. And he said, I believe, having listened to Peter, Simon, Simeon, having listened to Paul, having seen the work that God has wrought in the works of Titus, this reminds me, he says, of something from the Old Testament. This is the first time, incidentally, that we encounter somebody quoting Scripture in this conference. First time. And it's James who does it. I think that's great. James says, look. It's one thing for Peter to give his impression. It's one thing for for Paul and for Barnabas to give their opinion about these matters. But when it's all said and done, we've got to go back to the scriptures. That was a great battle cry of the Reformation too. Ad fontes, back to the sources. Let's go back to the scriptures and what do the scriptures say? And he could have quoted from any book in the Old Testament, but he quotes from the book of Amos. That's interesting, why? Because if you've ever read through the book of Amos, it's a book of judgment. It's about the people of God turning away from God and following after false gods and false idols. And and the book is a great catalog of Israel's sins. And what's so powerful about it, read it sometime, is that it describes America today in the 21st century to the T. And he said God is going to bring judgment, and God is going to scatter, and God is going to bring retribution. But then you get to the end. It's like the storm passes and a ray of sunshine comes out. And he says, but in that last day, God will restore what has been broken. He will mend what has been destroyed. He will gather what has been scattered. And he will do what? He will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, rebuild its ruins. He will restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the what? the Gentiles. In other words, in the last days, when the Messiah comes, he will rebuild Israel, a new Israel, and all people, all nations, will be gathered together. God will take sheep from all these different sheep pens, and he will draw them together in one great flock. That's what James says is going to happen. Therefore, he says, I suggest to you that we do not trouble these Gentiles anymore. Instead, we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from the blood, and let that be an end of it. Now, I said, the Reformers like to point out that church councils can and do err. And there have been some who have suggested that the conference did well up to this point, at which point they erred by putting this final restriction. In other words, saying, yeah, the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith, but we need to write to them and tell them not to eat food that has been sacrificed to animals or to take part in any kind of food that has been strangled, etc., cetera." Et cetera. Some would say that it probably, and I would probably say this, but then again, I wasn't there, and nobody asked my opinion. But if I had been there, I probably would have said, that's enough, we don't need to write any of that. Then again, as I said, I wasn't there. I think what we can say about this conference is that it was statesmanlike. Paul got, and you notice, he doesn't object to the letter. Paul got what he needed. Now, some people will say, well, Paul had gone, why did Paul go along with this idea of sending a letter that they were not supposed to take part and meet strangled animals? Why, did, why didn't Paul just say, no, 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 it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, and there's nothing more to it? Well, I think Paul explains this later on in 1 Corinthians. We've got just about two minutes left, so, well, not really. But at any rate, we're going to... Exercise a little grace and turn, if you will, at the first Corinthians for just a moment. Well, maybe we ought to hold off to the next week. We'll hold off to the next week on this. But let me just close with this. What Paul does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, well, turn there, let's just do it. He used to be indecisive, but now he's not so sure. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what Paul says about that. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, that's exactly what James was talking about. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence, that there is no God but one God. These these idols are just nothing but wood and stone. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. So he says, it doesn't matter if you eat food, sacrificed to an idol, an idol is nothing. Who cares? But then he goes on to say this in verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I think that's what James was saying in his own way, and I think that's why Paul went along with it. They had held up the idea that we are saved by grace through faith, that there's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Christ that all of our labors, all of our heritage, all of these things, as wonderful as they are in the sight of men, they are not all that impressive to God. We're saved by grace through faith. And we have great freedom in that, my friends. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, that we would not be under the yoke of the law. When I was um, first married and we had our two boys, and they were so small, we used to go to a family reunion up in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, it was Kristen's family, and we would always take them up there, the boys with us, to this family reunion every Thanksgiving, and all these old aunts that had not seen the boys for a year would come running over, and there was this one aunt, she always smelled like mothballs, and she always came running up to the kids, and she wanted a kiss, and it was terrifying for the boys, but you know, you don't want to offend aunt, so-and-so. And so, so Kristen and I would say, go over and give her a kiss. I don't want to give her a kiss. Give her a kiss! (laughs) And they'd go over and, and then they'd wipe it off as they walked away. And then Grandma would come into the room. And they'd go tearing across the room, jump into her arms, and smother her face with kisses. Now let me ask you a question. Was that first kiss really a kiss? See, Jesus set us free, and ours is a service, but it is a service of perfect freedom. We do it because we love him. We do it because of what he's done for us. If we're doing it because of the law, it's compulsion give her a kiss, and there's no freedom in that. But while we have been set free, James is saying don't use your freedom in such a way that it becomes a stumbling block to the weaker brother. You know what this is. It may be fine to drink alcohol in moderation, but if you know that you have somebody at your table that is an alcoholic and you feel, well, we're free, and you serve that and you cause your your weaker brother to stumble, then what? You have sinned not only against him, Paul says, but against Christ. I think that's what James was saying. Yes, you are freed, you've been saved by grace through faith, but don't use that freedom. Don't just go out and live any way you want in such a way that you cause these weaker brothers here in Jerusalem to stumble. So yes, food offered to idols may be nothing, but if you know it's going to cause your weaker brother to stumble, why would you do it? We have been set free. We have been given liberty as Christians. The council basically said, don't use your liberty for license. It was a great council, and it preserved the hope of the gospel. And as we're going to see, it further invigorated the church to go out and change the world. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your grace. We thank you that if we come from a long and illustrious history, we thank you for that history, for that heritage. But let us not put confidence in that, but confidence. Let us boast in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we do not come from an illustrious history, if all our ancestors are rogues and pirates, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that we are ingrafted into that great family, that family of Jesus Christ, and made sons and daughters of the Most High King. Father, We thank you for this liberty, for this freedom that we find in Jesus Christ. Grant that we may not use it in such a way that we cause our weaker brothers to stumble. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you.